Good morning. It is good to see you. For those uh, who don't know me, my name is Taylor Sutton. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and it is a, a privilege to be able to be with you today in the flesh and also to look with you at Galatians chapter 5. Uh, in the first book of the Harry Potter series, there's a moment where Harry, the title character, is trying to find a train platform. If you've read the books, you're very familiar with this idea that the way you get to the magical wizarding boarding school is you take a train that leaves from platform nine and three quarters. So this platform is magically hidden inside a regular London train station. So Harry, being an orphan, being really on his own and new to the world of magic, doesn't know how to find platform nine and three quarters. And so eventually he has to ask someone else's mom, how do I get to the platform? And this is what she says. Not to worry. All you have to do is walk straight at the barrier between platforms 9 and 10. Don't stop and don't be scared. You'll crash into it. That's very important. Best do it at a bit of a run if you're nervous. The passage that we will consider today is going to ask of you and me something that is just as counterintuitive as running into a barrier to get to a train platform. As you open to Galatians 5, verse 16, what we are going to be asked to do this morning by this text is to pursue moral transformation not by moderating grace or, or limiting grace, but by running headlong into grace. We've been considering Galatians chapter 5 together and with a particular focus on the freedom of the gospel. And we've seen over the last two weeks that the gospel is opposed to legalism and the gospel is opposed to license, which means that the good news of Christianity says no to trying to earn your way into God's favor and the good news of Christianity also says no to just giving in to sin, doing whatever you want, because it, it will all be forgiven. But I have found, maybe this has been true for you as well, that it's when I get, a, get around to actually trying to grow, actually trying to say no to sin and yes to God, that I can operate as if I better not think about grace too much. I can operate as if real moral seriousness requires that I downplay grace. The good news of Christianity is that God has given us what we don't deserve and what we could never earn. And the temptation that we face, once, we, once we're convinced that God's way is best and we're trusting in Jesus and we're trying to grow, the temptation is to think, well, maybe I need to smuggle in just a little bit of legalism so that I don't get, you know, soft or lazy 
morally. Here's the amazing message of our passage this morning. Grace is not an obstacle to becoming a better person. Grace is actually the only way for you to become a better person. Let's look at Galatians 5, verse 16 through 24. This is what God's Word says. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Grace is not an obstacle to becoming a better person. Grace turns out to be the only way to become a better person. What Paul does in this passage is he sets up a sharp contrast between the spirit and the flesh. And as he unpacks this contrast in a few different ways, he's drawing the blueprint for how believers in Jesus grow and change and experience transformation. He does this, uh, he, he puts this argument forward in three parts. So first, Paul traces the pathway to growth, to transformation. Second, he shares the promise of growth. And then third, he reminds us of the basis or the foundation of our growth as Christians. So let's look at each of these. First, the pathway to growth, the, the pathway to transformation. This is found in verses 16 through 18. Let me just start by reading 16, which really summarizes this whole passage. Verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So here, in a nutshell, is the pathway to growth. We grow by leaning on the Spirit not on the law or the flesh. Christians grow, we make progress in holiness 
by depending on, by leaning on the Holy Spirit, not on the law or our own flesh. So verse 16. Verse 16 has a command and it has a promise. The command is walk by the Spirit. And the promise says this is what will happen if you walk by the Spirit. What will happen is you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's important that we remember how this fits into the flow of Paul's argument in chapter 5. Look up to verses 13 through 15, and you'll see there that in verses 13 through 15, Paul has just said that we must not use our freedom in Christ as an opportunity for the flesh. And remember, the flesh just means uh, our human nature in its weakness and sinfulness. So we are not to take our gospel freedom and use it as a cover or as a free pass for indulging our sinful desires. Paul says, instead, love one another, serve one another through love. So now, verse 16 comes in to say, now we need to understand that the way we say no to the flesh is not by returning to legalism. It's not even by constructing a softer, gentler form of legalism. The way we say no to the flesh and the way that we walk in love, verse 16 is saying, is by walking in the Spirit, living a life of total dependence on the Holy Spirit. Now, how do we know that the Spirit here is meant to contrast with the law? I see two reasons why. One is verse 18, which we'll get to in just a minute. But the other reason is how Paul has talked about the Spirit previously in this letter. So you don't have to turn there, but if you want to look at Galatians 3, 1 through 5, Galatians 3, 13 and 14, and chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, those are three places before this section of Galatians where Paul has talked about the Holy Spirit. And what you see in each of those three passages, 3, 1 through 5, 3, 13 and 14, and 4, 1 through 6, is that the Spirit's power is unleashed through faith in the saving work of Christ. The Spirit's power is unleashed through faith in the saving work of Christ. And because of that, Paul can say the Spirit is the proof that we are not in bondage to the law anymore. So Paul has set up this contrast between the Spirit and the law, in which the Spirit means adoption. It means we are sons and daughters. It means we are free. The law as commandment, the law as a return to the expired covenant of Sinai represents slavery and bondage. So with that in mind, when we come to verse 16 and we hear Paul say, walk by the Spirit, that has to mean at least lean on the Spirit's help to more fully embrace the freedom and grace found in Jesus. The the spirituality uh, that the Holy Spirit does in us is never detached from the objective work of Christ. So walking in the Spirit must mean, at the very least, leaning on His help and power to more fully embrace the grace and freedom that we found in Christ. 
And so with, with that in our minds, the promise of verse 16 is essentially this. If you will lean into your gospel freedom, it will actually push back the darkness in your own heart. It's an incredible promise. And verse 17, as we look back to our passage, verse 17 helps us understand why it works that way. It works that way because there is this hostility between the spirit and the flesh. So that the degree to which we submit to the spirit, to that same degree, we will be leaving the flesh behind. They are at odds with each other. So one implication of verse 17 is that the Christian life is a struggle. And if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you can attest to that. It is a struggle to wage war against sin, to wage war against the inclinations inside of us that point us in the wrong direction. But verse 17 also implies that there's hope. And it's this, that if we will follow the Spirit, if we will follow Him deeper and deeper into the freedom and grace of Jesus, He will not lead us astray. He will, by definition, lead us away from sin and corruption and wickedness. And now we come to verse 18. And verse 18 is, is meant to encourage us. If there was any doubt that the struggle described in verse 17 might end in a stalemate or a draw, verse 18 comes crashing in and says, No, Christian, have hope. You, you have the upper hand against sin. But what is so surprising to me is what verse 18 says as to why we have the upper hand. Look at verse 18. Here's what breaks the stalemate between the flesh and the spirit. But if you are led by the spirit, here it is, you are not under the law. How surprising. He could have said, uh, if you are led by the spirit, the flesh does not have dominion over you. If you're, not, if you're led by the spirit, uh, the flesh is dead. That's true. And he'll, he'll say that soon enough. But his encouragement in verse 18 is Christians have the upper hand against sin because we're not under the law. Now by law here, he's talking once again about the law of Moses, the old covenant that regulated Israel's relationship with the Lord prior to the coming of the Messiah. Uh, it was that covenant that the Galatian Christians were tempted to sort of re-adopt and try to add on top of the new covenant. And that's what Paul has been trying to convince them in this letter that they must not do. But this idea of verse 18, it really applies to any moral code that we try to turn into a mechanism for self-justification. So here's the, the point of verse 18, or here's a, a takeaway from verse 18. The fact that you no longer need your obedience to save you actually enables real obedience. Think about that. Think about the paradox of this. The fact that you don't need your obedience to save you anymore, that reality actually creates, generates, enables true obedience. Now, how can Paul say this? Well, there's probably a few reasons, but one in particular that jumps out to me is this. 
both legalism and license grow from the same soil. They both grow from the soil in our hearts of self-reliance. Legalism says, I have what it takes to impress God with my obedience. License says, I have what it takes to decide right and wrong for myself. Thank you very much. So the law in its commanding function, the demands of the law, when they hit this soil, it has no power to change the soil. It only provokes and stirs up what's there. So when the demands of the law, however good the law might be, when the demands of the law hit a self-reliant heart, what gets stirred up is either self-reliant legalism or self-reliant sinning. So if we try to fight the sin in our hearts with legalism, it's like trying to put out a fire with gasoline. You're taking self-reliance and you're trying to use self-reliance to extinguish another form of self-reliance in your own heart. And so what what the gospel says, what Paul is, is urging us to see here is that when we come to Jesus, we are freed from the demands of the law that provoke and entice us to self-reliance. We're free from that. So, verses 16 through 18 They trace the pathway to growth. We grow as Christians by depending on the Spirit, not on the law or the flesh. Now we come to verses 19 through 23, and here Paul gives us the promise of growth. What we have in verses 19 through 23 are two lists. The works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. You see lists like this in several places in Paul's letters. And, and sometimes Paul shares these lists, a negative list uh, with a positive list, vices and virtues. Sometimes Paul shares these as commands, saying, Christian, don't do these things. Instead, do these things. And certainly That is one implication from verses 19 through 23. But don't miss the fact that here, Paul gives us these lists not as commands, but as statements. In effect, this is a promise. Think of the promise like this. Do you want to rely on your own resources? Do you want to try to keep the law in the power of your flesh, well, you can then expect a life as described in verses 19 through 21. It's a long list. It's a list uh, describing four areas of brokenness. Broken morality, broken worship, broken relationships, broken pleasures. And 
as if that wasn't unattractive enough, Paul adds at the end of verse 21, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, That's not to say that if you uh, do these things, you've somehow forfeited your salvation. The point is, if your life looks like 19 through 21, that's exposing the underlying reality that you're not actually trusting in Jesus as your king and rescuer. So that's one half of the promise of 19 through 23. 22 and 23 then come to us and say, will you embrace the freedom of the gospel? Will you lean into the Spirit and the grace and adoption that He has brought you into? If you will, you can expect your life to look like verses 22 and 23. Who wouldn't want to look like this? Who wouldn't want to be around someone who could be described by these words? This is who we were meant to be. A community characterized by these nine virtues looks and feels like the new creation. Paul is saying, this is what you can expect if you will just leave the law and the flesh behind and embrace the Spirit, embrace Christ, embrace the gospel again and again and again, this is the outcome. This is the result. And notice how he brings in the law again at the very end of verse 23. He says, against such things there is no law. Almost certainly Again, he's thinking of, in particular, the law of Moses, that if we let the Spirit produce this in us through the gospel, we are actually doing the things that the law calls us to, but has no power to produce in us. That is the promise of growth, that the Spirit produces better things in us than the law or our flesh ever could. Now we come to the basis for growth. This is verse 24. Verse 24. Similar to verse 18, this is another statement meant to encourage us, to strengthen us with the realization that God has given us what we need to fight sin. What is the encouragement in verse 24? Let's look at it again. Verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, with its passions and desires. So the sinful inclinations in us no longer get to decisively direct us because of Jesus. The idea here is that when we trust in Christ, we are so united with his crucifixion that our inner corruption in some real but mysterious sense was crucified with Jesus. So that although it's still operational, it has been dealt a mortal wound and it's no longer in charge. So when we think of the cross, we we have to remember that the cross is not just our ticket into forgiveness. The cross is the very basis of our transformation. The death of Jesus purchases our forgiveness And it purchases our transformation. 
So that means any progress that we make in the Christian life is always a deepening application of the power of the cross. So we've seen the pathway to growth, the promise of growth, and the basis of growth. Grace is not an obstacle to becoming a better person. Grace is the only way to become a better person. We could say even more strongly, grace is the way you start to become who you are meant to be. I love the way that the Puritan John Owen said it, capturing some of the themes of this passage. John Owen wrote, The Spirit alone brings the cross of Christ into our hearts with all its sin-killing power. So you have the cross with its sin-killing power, and the Spirit alone brings that into our hearts, applies it, makes it real to us, spreads it out into new areas of our life. But the question comes to my mind, at least, what is our role in this? This passage is largely about what God has done and what God will do, but it did start with a command. There's one imperative in verse 16 to verse 24, and it is, Walk by the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. So we we know we have a role. We know from the whole Bible that there is great effort involved in following Jesus. So the question I think this passage places before us is what kind of effort is fitting in light of the grace and freedom of Christ? Think of your moral life as an engine. The question this passage puts before us is, what kind of fuel is that engine built to run on? All of us have tried running our engines on the fuel of legalism and law and shame and guilt and self-condemnation. What this passage is calling us to is not to just empty the gas tank and let the engine sit quiet It's to put a better kind of fuel in, the fuel of grace. And so, as far as what this looks like, there are a lot of things that could be said. Let me just close with this idea. Seek transformation by transferring trust from yourself to Christ in the particulars of whatever area you're trying to grow in. Let me give you an example. Let's just take two from these lists. If you're trying to move from anger to love, this passage would say, don't try to motivate yourself. Don't try to fuel that transformation with self-condemnation. Oh, how pathetic to be an angry person. How embarrassing. You're better than that. Can't you keep it together? Can't you keep it under control? That's trying to to fight fire with gasoline. So what would it look like to transfer trust from self to Christ in the particulars of anger? Uh, Anger is, is a sin that God has been exposing in my own heart over the past year or so. And one of the things that I've seen is that I can always trace anger back to pride. 
Anger rises up when pride is insulted, right? When my own sense of self-importance is ignored or dismissed or antagonized in some way. And so anger is in part my assertion of self-importance and my attempt to control other people so that they will acknowledge my self-importance. So you can just see how this is dripping in self-reliance, self-trust. So to transfer trust from me to Jesus might look like resting in the dignity that Jesus gives me rather than angrily clawing for some kind of dignity of my own creation. Transferring trust might look like letting Jesus vindicate me, letting Jesus be my protector. Transferring trust from self to Christ might look like just humbling myself at the foot of the cross and realizing that I'm not that big of a deal. And so I can roll with other people affirming that I'm not that big of a deal. And maybe most profoundly, as we believe God's grace for the particulars of our sin, as we actually believe that Jesus loves me, an angry, prideful person, Jesus actually purchased forgiveness for my embarrassing self-importance. As we soak in that, as we let that heal us and calm us, anger subsides and we start to become a little bit more loving. If you really have experienced that, how could you not start to at least reflect that even a little bit towards other people when you have marinated in the love and the grace and the patience of Jesus towards you. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. It is profound. It is mysterious. It operates independently of our work. But when it comes to our work, when it comes to our role, I am so encouraged that the power of the Spirit is unleashed in the sinner's embrace of Christ. We can do that. If we're Christians, the Spirit has already enabled us to start doing that. We can keep doing that. We are sinners. We need Jesus. It's in that embrace, the sinner's embrace of Christ, that the transforming power of the Spirit is unleashed. That is amazing. That is good news. Let's pray. Father, we could not have invented such kindness in a deity if we tried. We could not have invented a Savior like this one. We could not have invented a Spirit like this one. We could not have constructed a process for transformation so counterintuitive yet beautiful and wonderful as this one. Lord, we long not just to marvel at the blueprint. We want to experience this. We want to taste this. We want to see the grace and the freedom of the gospel make us different this week. Would you do that? Would you do that? And would you, would you guard us from the temptation to try and fuel that change by law and legalism, by shame, and self-reliance.
We pray this through the mighty cross of Jesus and the transforming power of the Spirit. Amen.